to another episode of, or welcome back to Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 19.3 FM, People Powered Radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, and this week's episode is called Discussing Life. open-ended and how vague sort of this week's topic is. I guess we're always discussing life on this show. Uh, welcome back to Sacred Cinema, by the way, after a brief hiatus here on 2XX 98.3 FM, the People Power Radio Station. Um, we're back, and for the new listeners uh, this season, let's say, uh, Sacred Cinema is all about peeling back some interesting insights that we might be able to draw from uh, films uh, from all different generations and types and styles uh, to sort of answer some questions or maybe get to get closer to some answers for some questions. Uh, about to some to answer, get closer to answering some questions about what is the nature of humanity? What's the nature of the universe? What, what is there any perspectives on on humanity and the world around us that we can learn from cinema and uh, moving forward in our lives? And we generally get pretty philosophical on the show, uh, and so entitling an episode discussing life seems a bit uh, vanilla, a bit bland. But we're we're kind of honing in on that that practice of kind of wandering around and pontificating, uh, particularly speaking out loud about it, walking around like some kind of ancient Greek philosopher and contemplating your existence in the world, but specifically that aspect of discussion, articulation, putting things out there um, in the dialogue, physically speaking, uh, maybe to yourself or to other people out loud about it, and what that practice does and what are its effects and, and the potential outcomes and things like that. And we're going to... Um, kind of look at this on three different levels. What I mean by that is a, a film in which that's that's sort of done by one character, um, a film in which that's done by two characters, and a film where it's done by three different characters. And see if things kind of break up a little bit or change, the more people will be sort of add to these these kinds of conversations. The, the, the films we're going to be talking about, they're all interestingly set in the 1990s, I should mention from the start. And, I, and, and there was a bit of a movement in independent cinema throughout the 90s, of, and, and not even just in independent cinema, but in, I suppose, Western media generally about putting a huge emphasis on dialogue, if you think about the films of like Quentin Tarantino or in a, or a TV show like Seinfeld, um, and, you know, I think it sort of started with films maybe like, like Diner, but then you've got other films like Swingers as well. The 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 uh, John Favreau and Vince Vaughn film, where where dialogue and conversation between characters becomes the focus, becomes uh, that the feature of the film itself, not just uh, the spectacle. And there's all sorts of reasons why that might be. We're not going to touch on those for too long. But that that was sort of something happening in the '90s. And these are the kind of films that get not just not just put a massive focus on dialogue itself uh, between characters, but also like um, uh, dialogue about deep philosophical ideas, the the meaning of life, existential questions, not just you know you know that they put they call the royale with cheese in france that kind of um sort of conversation uh, and interestingly as well another just connection that is i think important to mention and to, just to consider uh dear listener throughout today's episode is that they they all take place in a in a relatively foreign land or at least for the protagonist the place they're in is not their homeland and that's a key theme in all of the uh in all of the films and and we, i think it's going to loop back at the end uh, of some significance but what actually are the films we're talking about this week the first one is naked directed by mike lee we've talked about a of Mike Lee films uh, on the show. He's a favourite director of mine. This is Naked from 1993. We're then going to move on to Before Sunrise, directed by Richard Linklater of 1990, uh, from 1995. That one's been on the list for a very long time. 
And then we're going to finish off with Mind Walk, uh, directed by Bernd Capra, uh, based on the short story he wrote that was based on the book The Turning Point by his brother, Fritjof uh, Capra. That one's from 1990. But let's keep things off now with Mike Lee's Naked. So I think we should probably just say up front, you know, people have seen this film before and they might be like, oh, interesting choice. You know, this film isn't just, you know, one man walking around pontificating about existence, but it certainly isn't not about that. I mean, the the, the our main protagonist, Johnny, uh, played by uh, David Thewlis, he does do a lot of pontificating about deep philosophical themes, and we're going to kind of focus specifically on that aspect of the film uh, and maybe kind of gloss over some of the aspects. But when I think about it a little bit as well, I mean, the film is very much like a a deep sort of exploration of power, particularly on the lines of economics and gender, um, you know, in, in, in England, but in sort of a Western liberal democratic um, environment. But I think... Like rewatching the film this week, I think it's ultimately kind of like you could draw a really general um, view and just say the film is kind of like this overall criticism of the individual or the, or the fetishization of the individual, a criticism of the idea or, or you know the, um, the, the 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 sacredness or the, the nobility or, um, or of the individual as a sort of political entity, a political concept. Um, not to put words in Mike Lee's mouth or anything, but um, as a guy that has sort of a social realist background, which we've talked about a lot on the show, I can't help but think that, um, that that's certainly uh, that's something you could say about this film. And, and I think you'd be kind of accurate when you start thinking about sort of what happens to the different characters in the film and how they sort of rely on one another. Um, but, but I don't think that's actually antithetical to the conversation we're having today. So like while it's not just about an individual pontificator, let's say, by focusing on the effect and and also sort of the the outcomes or the fate or the destiny of that single alone pontificator uh, of such a character, we, we we kind of tell. I think we actually tell that broader story about it being a criticism of the individual. And I think this will make more sense as we go through and sort of discuss where sort of the side characters sort of come in and out and, and their significance. But we're going to mostly focus on the the protagonist Johnny, played by Thulis, and there's kind of two aspects of his character, or at least two aspects of his effect on other people that I really want to hone in on the first is that he's extremely suffocating and intrusive and intense and harmful and and dear listener this is a feeling that you are already familiar with if you've not seen the film just by virtue of listening to the show right now right this is you know when you listen to the constant ramblings the relentless and persistent ramblings of a single person talking about deep and deep philosophical existential ideas it can be so draining and exhausting and suffocating and if we're speaking specifically about the character of Johnny and less myself it's not just on the psychological level and the emotional level of you know listening to a guy constantly go at you about deep existential um problems and ideas that he seems to just want to throw on you almost in an abusive way but he also is very physically abusive and that that, that parallels his um, psychological uh, character let's say as much as you know his physical and psychological effect on people mirror one another uh, and so when we see him sort of committing I should be a bit of a word of warning if you haven't seen the film. Some pretty egregious acts of assault in this film uh, that they do sort of parallel. Uh, they do sort of parallel the 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 interventionist and bombarding effect that his his words have. Uh, so his physicality and his 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 words are, are kind of on the same level there. Um, but speaking of how this sort of this persistent, this persistent relentless kind of the, 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 this relentless rhythm of his pontifications, I think rhythm is a really important word to use when you talk about his character. We talk there is an intensity to his rhythm, but sometimes an intense rhythm. You know, if you think about it in terms of music, for example, it, it, as much as it can be suffocating and intense, it can also kind of maintain a sense of allure. Or, or charisma, or 
or you can kind of command a hold on people, command their attention by being so charismatic and and having that kind of alluring rhythm to your speech. And, and this is sort of the other aspect of his effect on people, despite the fact that he is so egregious and, and aggressive and, and harmful. Um, people seem to be so drawn to him. Even the victims of his his acts can't help but be drawn to him. And and although they might feel shame for how much they're drawn to him, it does break them down. Uh, not to be the shame isn't just that breaks them down, but the the, the the feeling of loss that they no longer have him is also something that breaks them down. Um, so his effect on people is is, is as much as it is um, harmful. A lot of the people in his world can't help but be drawn to him. It's not surprising that a, a director like Sean Baker um, is admires not only Mike Lee but uh, this this film. He's spoken about a lot about how this is a big film for him. Uh, we made a very similar point. When we talked about the film Red Rocket uh, many months ago and looked at Sean Baker's film. I put these two films they, they aesthetically very different, but in terms of their characterization, I would call these two characters. I think they, I'd be very interesting to see a conversation between them. Let's put it that way. Um, I almost to the point that I think you could you could almost think of this like you could almost look at this like someone could totally misunderstand this film and and, and like it, it has a lot of the similar qualities of like an American Psycho no, no like obviously because it's a similar themes and there's a very similar character to the Patrick Bateman character in, in this film but it's of the same time and it's kind of about the same sort of socio economic milieu and then that kind of thing. But you could kind of see like a dating or like a life coach kind of using this character in his kind of Jordan Belforty kind of way and be like, look, I don't agree with what he does and what he says, but you can learn a lot about how he attracts attention and and, and commands uh, people's attention and that sort of thing. Like he has this this, this very uh, intoxicating allure to the point that you can't help, sometimes you can't help but laugh in this film. And you're like, God, why am I laughing? Like, why am I getting along with this guy and finding his jokes funny? He's like such a bad guy, but you can't help feel that. And I think this film is almost worth watching just for that quality. Um, but I think also the film goes a step further in how it it does sort of explain why maybe we have a slight sense of sympathy towards this character as bad as he is. Um, and it's not just because he is just he has that charismatic demeanor, but it's also because the film gives us this alternative throughout. And and, and like on, on one level as well, he's like this agent of revelation, and he talks a lot about the book of Revelation, ironically, but um, or not ironically, but um, you know when he encounters. You know, people that follow the rules, the typical members of society, he does reveal their limits. And as much as we don't like him, the other characters, you know, when he reveals their limits, we also kind of don't like them as well. We see their flaws. So there's no perfect character in this film that's standing right next to him going, well, this is who you should have been all along. And the, the good characters in these films are also victims, and no one wants to be a victim either. And probably more importantly, more important points, been making that Patrick Bateman point as well, kind of but think that the only other powerful person in his world and that's the yuppie um quasi patrick bateman character um the 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 landlord guy he's he's the only character in in his world that's worse than him he's kind of his polar opposite and and it's kind of what he's running from so you kind of not not to justify his behavior but you kind of think like well the, the opposite of him is also just as terrible and and ironically commits the same kind of um terrible assaults on literally the same people and so the ultimate outcome of this is this: when we have this clash of these rival energies, that this this very intense and, and aggressive and, and harmful energy clashing with this very alluring and charismatic energy, is we kind of have this cycle of death and rebirth in this film, where he obviously Johnny obviously engages in very self-destructive behaviours and becomes sort of implodes um, as the film progresses into its third act, and we see a really interesting choice from Lee where the characters. 
he garners their sympathy and their care and those that are in his circle, despite the fact that he's put them through so much hell and betrayed them, they do come to his aid. And this is where sort of the, the, the explorations of gender come into it because it's, it's always the female, it's the, it's the, it's the female character in this film, although they are very different and they're coming from different walks of life. Um, they, they do, they are the ones that look after him and take care of him despite the fact that they're also his victims. And so there's this tragedy in this, um, not just on gender lines, but also just in general lines that, that the, the pontificating individual, that sort of self-indulgent, I'm very important, listen to what I have to say, whether you want to hear it or not, as confident as, as and strong as they may appear at times, they can't stand on their own. Or this is sort of the idea that this film might lift up, and and and, and but it doesn't end there. You know, they can't stand on their own. They need to be brought up by other people. But in having that sort of perpetual and eternal um, commitment to self indulgence and their own voice, their own singular voice, they ultimately do also bring down the other people, the, the people that do are, are agreeable enough or. Com- kind or compassionate enough to help them get back up. So, so when we watch a film like this, we kind of get this idea that the individual on their own, you know, when they're in love with themselves, that they they fail uh, and they bring other people down. So, is there a way that maybe they can be redeemed, perhaps by finding their counterpoint, their idyllic counterpoint? Well, this point, I think it makes sense to move on to our second uh, film for today. But before we do, just remind you, I listen to Sacred Cinema here on Two Double X ninety eight point three FM, People Powered Radio. I'm your host, Jimmy Bernasconi, for the remainder of this half hour slot. And be sure to stay tuned for more quality radio programming here on Two Double X, or jump onto our website to consider subscribing to the station or sponsoring the show. But moving on now, we're talking about you know, can the the pontificating individual find their counterpoint and maybe find some balance with finding sort of their their idyllic partner in life? Well, at this point, let's talk about Before Sunrise. Very famous film i'm sure you've all seen it or heard of it uh, directed by richard linklater starring um ethan hawk and um uh sorry um julie delvey of course uh and in this one uh, if you haven't seen it, it's two young strangers jesse and celine jesse played by um hawk and uh, celine is played by delvey and uh they meet on a train uh that's going through vienna and jesse is to get off in vienna because he's getting a plane there the next day and he invites celine to join him for 12 hours through the night in vienna and 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 she does, and the whole film is just this. Um, I think it goes for like an hour and twenty minutes, or an hour and a half of them just sort of walking around Vienna and, and talking about life and kind of falling in love in the process. And I want to talk about this one. I mean, there's so much you could say about this film. I kind of want to just briefly touch on this one um, in how it exp- how it explores this idea of um, the limits of the individual and how the limits of the individual can be overcome through a kind of partnership. So what I what I personally find very interesting about this film, having watched it a couple of times, you know, in addition to all the romance and the beautiful imagery, and I love being, I was just there, and so I'm going to go watch it again, and like that whole aspect of it is, is so wonderful. But this unique relationship between Jesse and Celine is not just a classic romantic relationship. There's a, there's a very unique dynamic there, and and when I watch when I watch this film, I, I find myself asking sort of what what she actually sees in him because she obviously likes him, but I, I, I'm kind of curious about what it is, and the more I think about it. You know, when I think about what she likes about him, it's kind of hard to think about it when, when you know, given the fact that she is clearly, you know, a little bit smarter, a little bit more modest, a little bit better kept. You know, she's got a plan. She isn't, you know, getting off the train with her clothes on with no money. You know, she's not coming off this embarrassing breakup in Madrid. You kind of got to wonder, like, why she would sink down to this guy. But I think as the film progresses, it kind of reveals itself that she likes the fact that he's kind of this unfinished puzzle, right? Which is importantly accompanied by this kind of open-minded curiosity 
like while he pontificates a lot and has these deep thoughts, he, he, he is curious to hear what she has to say. And so much of what he says, so much of his pontifications are questions, questions about the world. And he's always getting her um, thoughts on things. And, and it's not just a, 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 and while he does sort of get on his soapbox a little bit, he can't help but sort of ask her questions. And he might sort of um, throw things back on himself and talk about his own experiences a lot of the time. But there's a general openness and, and a kind of modesty about him. And there's, there's that kind of open bookness that I think she likes about about him, that he is curious, and curiosity doesn't mean that you know everything, but you want to know more, basically. So as forward and confident as he appears, he's also sort of entirely respectful of her and the things she might be able to offer him. He's open to her wisdom, uh, in, in the same way that he's open to the beauty of Vienna as this naive American who's encountering this strange new land and embarrassingly doesn't know anything about it, despite the fact that it's such a big deal and, and, and has such you know so much historic uh, significance. I think sort of the way he treats her um, with this sort of what is the beauty to be revealed behind the facades here, um, that very much parallels his view of her, and I think she she appreciates that. So I think in a kind of reductionist way, we could say that the film is kind of this celebration of the unresolved. And if you've seen the other two films in this series, you know that's definitely a core theme throughout the trilogy, this emphasis on process rather than uh, endpoints and solutions, things being unresolved and that making them beautiful. Uh, so on the romantic level, the whole film is obviously based around their relationship kind of blossoming um, without obviously seeing itself through. We know that they're not going to see each other after 12 hours, so we know it's got the, it's inevitably going to be sort of an unfinished business. Uh, and they talk about goodbyes and how they you know, have to do these faux goodbyes because it's not really a real goodbye, or they're going to have to do these very sudden goodbyes and leave things open-ended. There's this sort of open-ended destiny at the end of the film as well. If you haven't seen it, I don't mean to give too much away there, but you, there is certainly a motif of unresolved business on the romantic level throughout the film and the, the films of this series, but also on a broader level, you know, when we have a conversation between two people and only two people, things are inevitably left unresolved, you know, assuming those people are fairly married to their views and somewhat stubborn, right? Two people can't garner a resolution on their own, right? We can only have, with two people, we can only have a thesis and antithesis, a point of view and a counterpoint, right? Two pole opposites. we see this in politics all the time we have sort of the red team the blue team by having two hegemonic two polar superpowers um, you don't get resolution you just have one point and then another and so of course this does avoid all of the issues lifted up in naked because we don't have sort of some single stale point of view that that gets fetishized within the mind of that own that that single person but we can't help but feel this sort of sense of yearning for resolution by the end of this film and you can certainly feel that when you see Celine get back on the train that you, you, you want closure you want to know what happens next and interestingly this is film one of three right we can't help to yearn um, for some resolution via triangulation right through thesis antithesis and then some kind of synthesis to put it in Hegelian terms if I can be so crude uh, so let's move on now to the third film. We're in the land of threes now. What about a, a film about discussing life that occurs between three people, three different agents? Well, at this point, let's finish off things uh, with Mindwalk, directed by Bernd Capra uh, from 1990, based on the book by his brother, uh, The Turning Point. And if you haven't seen this one, it's pretty much a conversation about all the deep philosophical and scientific concepts, you know, quantum physics and Cartesian methods and all the, all the big, you know, I think therefore I am questions uh, between a politician, a poet and a scientist. And I think it's important to note that uh, Fritjot 
Fritjof Capra has a very, very much a scientific background as well, and we could talk about sort of the theory, the scientific theories put forth in the film, um, namely the holistic theory put forward by the scientist character who advocates for this sort of systems theory um, uh, approach. But we could have done that with all the films this week, and I, I'm, I'm talking. If you haven't noticed already, we're kind of talking about more the dynamics of these films rather than the actual substance of the things being said and and what they can tell us about the world. That, that, that's sort of a, a different episode, I think. I want to specifically focus on what happens when you put three people together, um, and specifically three people who come from different backgrounds, right? So I think I, I, watching, I didn't see this film before, but, but watching it reminded me a lot of um, Tarkovsky's Stalker, actually, in that we kind of get this sense of three different disciplines or ha- ha- the fact that different dif- disciplines see the world differently, and there isn't this sort of single form of intelligence um, that sort of has all the answers, you know, the, 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 we, we can expand the many species, what intelligence is into many different species, all with different theories, all with different concepts of what the world is, which leads us further and further towards this sort of sense of unknown and not knowing what to do with the world when we have, um, you know, massive um, means of, of, of enacting things and exercising our power in the world. You know, we, we realise that there's, there's such a thing as scientific intelligence, political intelligence, uh, poetic intelligence. Which one should we actually rely on in um, solving our problems, you know, how can you be so sure that one is the best way or being intelligent in one regard is more important or more effective than being intelligent in another regard? And we could say something kind of contrived here, like uh, the film is about how it's only through unification of three separate forms of intelligence that we ever find resolution. You know, everyone brings something unique to the table. Everyone needs to be heard, different perspectives are a good. And, and, and I think that's that is important, an important point to make. And, and I think that's something that the film lifts up. But if we go back to the themes that we've been talk- talking about throughout today's episode, I mainly want to focus on the effect of having specifically three perspectives, or at least more than two, right? Um, sp- but importantly, more than two perspectives where all those perspectives come from a different place, you know, either a scientific place or a poetic place or a political place. And I don't think this is the point of the film by any means, but I, I, I think it's really relevant, and it's why I wanted to talk about this film for today's conversation, which is that there's a certain dynamic that, that's a, that, that we sense throughout this film where one character will take a particular position, perhaps the dominant position, another will contend with that position and, and sometimes even say, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here. And then a certain special form of power, and I'm not sure if other people have this experience watching this film as I do, but you kind of get to this point where you're like, oh, we haven't heard much from this one for a while. Are we going to hear more from the poet here? Or we haven't heard from the politician for a while. We're going to hear more from... And by two people in a, in a three-person dynamic in a three-person situation, two people contending, it sort of gives this certain special form of power on the third. And, and they don't even need to employ their own specific form of intelligence to do so. It's sort of like this breaking the deadlock kind of power, um, one which exercise will form a dominant majority. And this word majority, I think, is really important when, we, when we're talking about not just this film, but the, the broader themes of today's episode. Because I, what I think is really interesting when you watch this this film in, in light of what we've been talking about throughout um, this, this episode is that you know, when, you, when, you, when, you, when you take those themes and you rub them against sort of the, the current social or cultural political climate, you know, how polarised we are in, in so many ways, we start to realise that, that it, it's the power of the majority. Um, it, you know, but think about, okay, think about this. Like, think about how the world is so void of like a clear 
agreed upon unanimous universal framework for how life ought to be lived, right? We don't have a theory of everything. So think about the power of a majority in such a world. And when you when you think about it through that lens, when you watch this film through that lens, I think that kind of perfectly articulates sort of how things are kind of right now, that it, it's, it is a sense of majority rule, not necessarily through democratic means, but it's not necessarily who can be the most right or who can be the most true, but rather who are the, who are the two that side together and who was the one left out. If you think about USA, Russia and China, one might take a scientific, one might take a poetic, one might take a political approach to the geopolitical issues. What's What matters is not who's the most right or which approach is taken, but rather ultimately who are the two that are ganging up on the third, right? That's really going to be the question that, that dictates what happens in the future. So let's try and put that all in perspective though tie things together. We talked about naked, we talked about how when an individual is left to pontificate on their own or, or rather asserts that they would only like to pontificate on their own, they want to stand alone. Um, although that can be kind of understandable given the fact that, you know, um, sometimes we don't have someone else to, 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 to go up against or the, the other way of living, you know, just making our minds up and, and living the, you know, the life of a yuppie, let's say. You know, it's kind of understandable to sort of be that kind of island, that free-thinking, sovereign individual. But we ultimately require a sense of community to come help us eventually. And and this can cause a very tragic outcome if, for, for our saviours, you know, if we bring them down to our level, if we, if we, if they're the very, you know, if they're the ones that, um, that we've exploited in our process of being so individualistic, they're going to tragically and ironically become the ones that, that, that save us. And that's, that's, not a, that's not a desirable situation to be in. We need to find some greater form of community, of greater, a better, better means of interconnecting. And so it kind of takes us to this place. Well, maybe there is something very healthy in a kind of a dualistic partnership, finding another, finding a counterpoint, um, not fetishizing our own opinions, finding someone that thinks differently to us, embracing a sense of unresolved, um, you know, the, the unresolved, uh, avoiding stale dogmas, avoiding um, a, a sense of things getting stuck in the mud, having someone go up against us and 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 and, and pull us away from from the, the, the perspectives that we've kind of become um, married to, and it leads us to this kind of this beautiful place of seeing the, you know the openness of philosophy, things being unresolved, and think you know being wrong in clever ways rather than being. Um, asserting that someone is right all the time. But we can't help but feel that, you know, we're leaving truth on a train sort of flying away from us, right? It leaves us wanting or yearning for a sense of closure, for some kind of sense of completeness, of absoluteness. So in seeking resolution, we, we kind of can achieve that, um, especially if we acknowledge the value of, you know, the, the infinite number of different kinds of intelligence at our service. You know, if we're a scientist and we're butting up against a politician, maybe it's the poet that can break that deadlock. Or, or if we're a poet arguing with a, or a scientist, maybe it's a politician that can break that deadlock. And, and that's how resolution can be found. And maybe it is by bringing in some kind of synthetic agent or some agent of synthesis, I should say. That's how we sort of break free of that sense of yearning, uh, that yearning foreclosure. But I, I can't help but feel that there is an inherent warning there that we need to pay respect to, which is that in all of these films, they're all underpinned by a common thread. That or a couple, but a big one is that that there's no amount of pontificating by any one person or group of people that has ever fully resolved the deep questions of the universe. No matter how long we sit here and do this show, we are never going to articulate the meaning of life. It's just not going to happen. I, I hate to tell you, I didn't think you think it would happen anyway. But anyway. 
the universe is always going to be, it's going to remain, as long as we use language as our means of communicating truth. It's an insufficient way of doing that. The universe is going to remain as foreign to us, or at least the truths of the universe are going to remain as unattainable to us or as foreign to us as the very foreign lands that we see our characters uh, rubbed up against in each of these films. There's always going to be a sense of unknown, a sense of unfamiliarity. So perhaps what's really important an important takeaway from these, this week's episode is, 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 is to remember that when we try to answer, you know, what life is, questions around life or what the meaning of life is, we sometimes do come up with answers. You know, politicians have to, poets have to, scientists have to. But no matter how many people we involve and no matter how, many, how, how diverse those groups are, we're probably never going to reach pure truth. Now, I can't say that for sure, but I, I don't think we will. Rather, we have to probably, remember, we're, they're probably only just coming up with an idea with which most people, perhaps only a slim majority, agree. Well, that's all we've got time for this week on Sacred Cinema here on 2XX 98.3 FM. I've been your host, Jimmy Bernasconi. Thank you so much for tuning in. Stay tuned uh, to 2XX for more quality radio programming. We'll see you again next week. Cheers.